The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. in the book of 1 Kings. We're continuing in our series on the life of Elijah. If you were here last Sunday evening, Dr. Light highlighted the, the faith of Elijah as he challenged the authority of King Ahab and waited by the, the brook Kareth for ravens to bring him food day after day. Tonight we want to look at the next episode in the story. The next episode, which, which again describes an extremely difficult challenge uh, of faith, but much more importantly, highlights the fact that God and his word are worth trusting, no matter what the circumstances are. If you have your Bible, we'll read 1 Kings 17, verses 8 through 16. God's word says this, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, And bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. Only a handful of flour and a jar and a little oil and a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Let's pray. God, we thank you for recording this story for us, for recording what you did for your prophet and for others through him. We pray that as we think about this story tonight, that more of who you are and how worthy of being trusted you are would be impressed upon our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This is probably one of the classic stories of the Old Testament. I'm pretty sure that if you go through Westminster's Sunday school curriculum through elementary school, you'll get this story at at least once. I'm sure that most who who grow up hearing Bible stories are 
are told the story. And I think when we hear it, our, our interest is immediately drawn to the dramatic. We, we think of Elijah de- demanding the last food from a mother and her child. Or uh, we think about magic pots and reproducing oil and, and flour. And this, this chapter, I have to admit when I read it, has sometimes almost a fairy tale-like quality to it. You have ravens flying in and dropping bread and meat into the lap of Elijah, and you have uh, jugs and jars that sort of just magically reproduce, and you, I almost get the feeling that I'm in some Disney, Disney movie or something like that. But as we read this, we, we don't want to be thinking about it in fairy tale magic terms. We want to try to hear this passage and experience this passage as Elijah and this widow would have experienced the events that God called them to and brought them through as it happened. And so let, let's try to work through and just, just think what, what was happening in, in, in the minds and hearts, perhaps, of Elijah and this widow. You know, the passage starts with a challenge to Elijah's faith in God's word. God told Elijah, go live by the brook Hereth in order to survive the famine and I will feed you. And Elijah does that and God faithfully feeds him. And then the brook dries up. And we think, okay, God, you fulfilled your word, but now the brook is dry. What happens next? God is faithful and he comes to Elijah again. This time he says, go to Zarephath in Sidon. Now, this seems like a simple command, perhaps, but we have to have a little geography in mind. We don't know precisely where the brook of Kareth was, but we know generally where the brook of Kareth was. And if you were to go from the general area of the brook Kareth to Zarephath, you'd be talking about a solid 70 or 80 mile journey. So God is not just saying, you know, hop over the creek and there's a house there where you'll find food. Uh, it's quite a journey he's being called to go to. And, and not only that, but the Lord says, arise, go to Zarephath. He's calling him to go outside of Israel. God's saying, I want to protect you, Elijah, so go to Baal country. And not only do you need to go to Baal country, but you're going to go to Sidon. Pause for a second. Remember, who is king and queen over Israel right now? Ahab and Jezebel. Where did Jezebel come from? Sidon. It's Jezebel's father who rules over Sidon. So God says, I'm going to protect you, Elijah. Go into Baal country where Jezebel's father reigns and I'll keep you safe. And all of the, all of the, the, the tensions of that statement, all the ironies of that statement have to be going through Elijah's mind. But not only that, if that's not enough, in the midst of drought where scarcity reigns, Elijah is supposed to go and find sustenance from a widow. Go to Zarephath and find a widow. Again, God's putting the, the, the most impossible opportunities for sustenance in front of him. Widows would have been the last people who had enough food to sustain you in a drought. In fact, I love the, the comment of one guy who was writing on this passage. He said, you know, as hard as it might have been for a person to imagine that birds were going to drop food in his lap day after day, there's probably a better chance of birds dropping food in his lap than widows being able to provide for you through a famine. That's the challenge here uh, to what God calls uh, Elijah through. If If Elijah's thinking on his own, there are so many reasons not to take this journey. But he does. Why? Because he trusts God's word. 
you know, when Eliza shows up, then you imagine, okay, Elijah says, I trust God's word. God is faithful to his word. I'm going on this journey. Elijah shows up at Zarephath and his faith is challenged again, though. He arrives and finds the widow. However, she was identified. We're not told exactly how he knew this was the widow he was supposed to be fine, uh, fine but he, he does. And he says, uh, I'd like some bread. And you can sort of read between the lines. God sent me here for bread. Can I have some bread? Only to be told by the widow, actually, I don't have any bread. To be fair, she says, I have enough flour and oil to make one last cake for me and my son, and then we're going to die. And the implication is, if you'd like to die with us, come on in. But if you're Elijah, you have to be thinking, great, dead end, waste of an 80-mile hike. What now? Common sense tells us from every angle that there's no help here. That's what common sense tells us, but it's not what Elijah concludes. Elijah doesn't say, well, bummer, I guess there's no bread here. He says, God is going to provide. God, or Elijah concludes this because that's what God has told him. God has promised to him, I am going to provide for you through a widow. And so Elijah concludes that based on God's word, God is going to provide for him in ways that this woman cannot anticipate. This is Elijah. Let's think about things from the widow's perspective. Elijah, of course, knows a bit about this God, knows that God is trustworthy. The widow of Zarephath does not. So put yourself in the widow's position. She has, think about the famine that's been going on for several months and imagine the widow carefully monitoring the amount of flour and oil she uses every day. You know how it is, perhaps, if you live on a tight budget and you have to watch the food that you, you eat each day and, the, and the, what, what you shop for and how you use it. There's a careful monitoring of, of what you're using. This is, this is the widow. She's carefully monitored things, saving as much as she can, perhaps half starving herself and her son just to survive as long as possible. And yet despite her careful flower pinching, she and her son have now arrived at the point where there's one cake left and then we die. And certainly her experience is likely not unique. That would have been happening to many around her. And there's no reason to think that her experience and her desperate flight are all, all, that, all that different from what she would expect. And right as you, you know, put yourself in the, the shoes of this widow, right as you're getting ready to cook your final pre-death meal, up walks this rough-looking guy, you've never seen him before, and he asks for a drink of water, which was scarce, but you oblige and bring him a water. Actually, you know, after all, I'm not going to need any more water after, after today. But then he asks for bread, which was even more scarce. And the, women's, the woman's response is completely natural. She says, I swear to you, sir, I have only enough to bake a small loaf for my son and I, and then we're going to die. And then look what Elijah says. Elijah says, oh, don't worry. Go ahead, do exactly what you're doing. Just bring me the loaf first and then feed you and your son. And if you're the widow, you're thinking, yeah, sure you are. Yeah, sure. He says, you know, the just bring me some food. Just bring me the cake first, and I promise the flour won't run out. The oil won't run dry. You know, what a way to scam a mother out of her last cake, right? Make an outrageous promise and expect me to give you up my cake. And yet, the amazing thing is this woman agrees. This woman believes. She believes Elijah's promise, bakes him bread, and receives the blessing of food and life through the famine. Why would this woman believe? I think it's very important to notice that when she responds first to Elijah in verse 12, she says, as the Lord your God lives. In verse 12, this woman recognizes that Elijah serves the Lord God. 
she recognizes that he is a, a prophet or someone who, who serves the Lord. And then when Elijah speaks to her, he says, do what you've said, but first bring me a cake for thus says the Lord God of Israel. The widow's not just responding to Elijah, she's responding to the word of the Lord. And she recognizes that the, uh, the Lord speaks through him. So here we have Elijah and the widow. They both respond in faith to incredibly challenging situations, to commands to the word of the Lord, and in situations where every logical thought would have told them not to trust these situations. Both respond in faith in situations that seem impossible. But as we look at this story, we want to look at three things that this passage highlights about the faith of Elijah and this widow. So first, let's look at the nature of their faith. The nature of their faith. This passage shows us Elijah trusting God in circumstances that seem daunting and illogical. And it introduces us to a widow who's willing to risk her final meal for herself and her son because of her faith in God's promise. But we need to look carefully at how this story is told. If you read this passage, ask yourself this as you're reading it. What does the story highlight? What does the author emphasize as we read through this story? And and I'd encourage you to read through this and think about it carefully. You don't have time to read it all the way back through carefully right now. But if you do, as you read it, I think you will notice that the emphasis is never on the faith of Elijah and the woman as if their response was something extraordinary or particularly noteworthy. It just says of Elijah, so he went. It just says of the woman, so she baked. It's just a simple statement of what they did. There's no grand, and Elijah believed God, and it was amazing, and so God gave them. It's That's not where the emphasis is. The emphasis, again and again, all throughout this passage, isn't on the incredibleness of their faith. It's on God's word and what God promises and what God does. It's on the fact that God's word came to them and rescued them and provided for them in circumstances that would have seemed impossible. You see it uh, in verse 8. The word of the Lord came to him. Verse 14, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Verse 16, the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord. Uh, The focus of this passage is on what the Lord says, the faithfulness of the Lord, the fact that what the Lord promises actually happens, even though it seems like it would, there's no way it could happen. The emphasis is on the passage here is what God does. It points us again and again to God who is worth trusting, not to the amazingness of the people who trust it. You know, I think this is is an important point. I think, you know, when we think about faith, we think of admirable faith, we often think of admirable faith as some extraordinary willingness to believe something when it's really difficult to or when no one else does, and that extraordinary faith ends up being rewarded because of our persistence. I think of Stories like that of Mel Fisher. Some of you may have heard of Mel Fisher. He was a famous diver and treasure hunter uh, who spent over 10 years of his life convinced that a Spanish treasure vessel had sunk 500 years ago off the coast of the Florida Keys. And so every day for over 10 years, he dove off the Florida Keys looking for this treasure. Over the course of those 10 years, uh, public ridicule built up One of his boats sunk. He had to borrow money to fix it. 
Uh, investors polled their support. Over halfway through, his wife and eldest son, who were uh, helping him, died in a boating accident as part of it. Over 10 years, he keeps going, and he was, he was n- known amongst the, the Florida Keys not for his failure, but for the fact that every day, every morning, Mel Fisher would come down to the dock, he would undock his boat, and he would say to anyone around him, today's the day. Today's the day I'm finding the treasure. For over 10 years, put that calculation together, 3,650 times, he says, today's the day, through all of these circumstances, until finally in 1985, he finds a large Spanish treasure ship, $450 million worth of gold, silver, and jewels buried off the Florida Keys. Here's the man of faith, we say. Today's the day in the face of impossible circumstances, and see, he was rewarded for his persistent faith. He got the mother load. He's now known as the man who found the mother load. Uh, And that's sometimes how we think of our call to respond in biblical faith, or we think of these stories in the Old Testament of these people who had incredible faith in the face of things that shouldn't have happened, and because they had such amazing faith, God rewarded them in the end. But I don't see this passage emphasizing that. I don't think that's the focus here. Biblical faith is not a virtue that rests on the awesomeness of the person who persists in faith. Biblical faith is an honest recognition of God's power to do anything that therefore justifies faith. It was interesting. I was thinking about it today. I was looking back over the bulletin and thinking about the sermon title that I submitted earlier in the week. And you'll notice that the sermon title that I submitted is Extreme Faith Required. And I thought, really, I should have said extreme faith is justified because this passage shows us a God who is worth trusting in every situation, not a person who comes up with an incredible faith. And, you know, maybe this seems like we're splitting hairs or a minor point, but I really think that it is incredibly important. This passage definitely does give us a good example of faith to imitate. And it's certainly true that one of the key applications for us from this passage is to trust God. It is a call to faith. But I hope you go home tonight with a greater trust in your God, not a greater burden to trust more or believe more. Because the reason for our faith is important. This passage is not saying, be like the widow, have as great a faith as she did, and God will reward you. It is saying, look how God provides again and again and again, even where we would think he wouldn't be able to do it. What a God we have. What a God that is worth trusting. Look at his grace. Look at his promises. Look at his faithfulness. He could even fulfill his promises to a prophet through a widow in Baal country and to a widow in the midst of drought. If he can do that, then our trust is justified too. We should come away amazed at our God and what he could do, not amazed at a woman and how wonderful her faith was. So our first point here is to notice how this passage emphasizes God's provision and God's greatness and his worthiness, uh, how worthy he is uh, of our trust and faith. That's the nature of faith. Second, I want us to notice the key to faith. And as you and I think about applying this passage to our lives, this, I think, may be one of the most important points for us to grasp. What is it that brings Elijah and the widow to believe the thing that is going to happen is actually going to happen? Well, in both Elijah's case and the widow's case, the key to their faith was the word of God. 
Elijah does not randomly set out into a foreign country, show up there and think, boy, I'm hungry. You know what? I think God is going to miraculously allow flour and oil to to reproduce and feed me through a widow. Wouldn't that be a great idea? I'm going to believe that God's going to do that. It's not that, uh, that random conclusion of Elijah. Elijah has faith because God tells him he's going to do it. The word of the Lord came to him and said, Elijah, go, I'm going to bring a widow and I'm going to provide for you through a widow. Elijah has faith that this widow is going to provide for him because God told him she was. Not because he just decided, I need something and I'm going to have faith that God will do it. And the woman does not believe that she's going to be saved until God's prophet says, thus says the Lord God of Israel, your flour and oil will not run out. And I think it's very important to see that when the passage reports that this woman says, "Um, I'm going to bake my cake and then I'm going to die, that's not a condemnation of her. That's not a condemnation of saying, oh, she didn't have faith then. It was an honest assessment. That is likely what was going to happen. And that's probably what she should have believed until the Lord told her something different. When the Lord says, no, your flour is not going to run out, your oil is not going to run out, now the woman has faith that it's going to happen because faith comes from what God actually promises. When God makes a promise, he is faithful to his promises. So here's the key to faith. Faith is not believing that God will do whatever we decide to believe he will do. God is, faith is not saying, I am sick, and so I'm just going to believe that I will be better, and I will be better, because the greatness of my faith will lead to that point. Nor is faith taking a general principle that, say, God will provide for those who trust in him, and defining God will provide in our terms of what we expect God will provide. Faith is believing that God will always and ultimately do exactly what he says he will do, and he will always be exactly who he says he He will be, no matter what the circumstances, or no matter how hard it is to believe that God could fulfill the word that he gives us. And the widow was reminded of this on a daily basis. God doesn't come and drop a 500-pound bag of flour in her kitchen and say, See, told you the flour wouldn't run out. Here it is. Enjoy the rest of the famine. You'll be fine. No, every day she uses up what she has, but it doesn't quite run out. There's just enough for tomorrow. And so every day, Every day, the, word, the, the woman is brought back to believing the word of the Lord. He promised that he would sustain me, that it would not run out. And today again, I believe that it will not run out. That's what God promised. And this is very important for our understanding of faith. Maybe we can think of it in this way. When we're applying this passage to our hearts, a lot of times we put ourselves in Elijah's position. And we say, wow, look, Elijah needed food and God provided for it. And our application becomes, see, just believe God, and he will provide nicely for our life whatever we need at this point. But what does this mean for Christians who are executed in Egypt? What does this mean for Christians who starve in North Korea? What does this mean for Christians who get cancer and don't recover? What does this mean for the Horst family who lost a husband and a father this week? Why do we put ourselves automatically in the place of Elijah and assume from this instance that God will provide anything we need as long as we have faith? Why not put ourselves in the place of the common Israelite in this text? In two chapters, God is going to tell us that there are 7,000 Israelites right now in this famine who have not bowed to Baal, are not committing idolatry, and are his people. 
but are all of them having ravens drop bread off at their front door? Do all of them have flour and oil that run out? No. Those 7,000 faithful Israelites are suffering the consequences of famine, just like the rest of Israel. What was the difference between Elijah and these other 7,000 Israelites? Was it that Elijah believed God and the other 7,000 didn't? No. The other 7,000 were faithful to God as well. The difference is just that God had a particular job for Elijah, and so he made a particular promise to Elijah, and he was faithful to that promise. So here's what I think we need to remember. God provides perfectly for each of his people according to his perfect plan. Sometimes that means that we have regular provision of what we need. Sometimes when God promises it, it means we have miraculous provision for what we need. And sometimes it means suffering and lack as God calls us through pain or calls us home. It is God's word that we trust. The constant is this. God is with us. God is faithful to his word. God accomplishes his purposes. But the key is that God promises to fulfill what he has promised. And our faith should be in what he has promised, not anything we decide to believe in. I want to pause here and consider some application of this. If God is faithful to his word and to what he has promised, then the question for us becomes, well, what has God promised? If God will be faithful to the things he's promised you and I, what are the things that he has promised you and I that we ought to have faith in, no matter what happens, because he is faithful? I think there are undoubtedly so many promises in the Bible that we couldn't go through all of them, but But consider a few of them. Consider a few of the concrete promises God has made to us that we can set our feet on and sink our fingers into no matter what is happening around us. God has promised that he is with us and that we are his. Think of Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. Or think of Matthew, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God has promised to be with us, and that we are his. God has also promised that he will hear us when we pray, that we will never be turned away when we come in the name of his son, Jesus. Think of what Hebrews says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Or think of, think of the, the promise in, in Philippians where God says, In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. God promises that he will hear us, and God promises that we will never be turned away when we come in the name of Jesus Christ. That is a solid promise. Or think of another one. God has promised that he will save all those who trust in him through Jesus Christ. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a solid promise we can sink our fingers into. God has promised that no matter what suffering we do face, nothing can separate us from his love if we are in Christ Jesus. Think of Romans, Romans 8, For I am sure that neither death nor life 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a precious promise. When all of the bad things happen, nothing can separate us from Christ our Lord. Think about what else God has promised. God has promised that we need not worry about the details of life. Not because we will always have everything in every detail in life, but because the end he is bringing us to is to share in his heavenly kingdom. Think of what he says in Luke. He says, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and they will be added to you. And then listen to his conclusion. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. You hear the promise there. Don't be focused on the details of life. Your Father's bringing you into his kingdom. That's guaranteed. There's so many more promises we could look at. This is just a small snapshot, though. We could go on and on thinking of what God has promised. But if you hear the theme of what God has promised us, hear this. We are, we are often so focused on getting the details of life that stare us in the face. We're so focused on, will God heal me? Will God give me the next paycheck? Will God? And we're focused on the details of life. God's promises don't talk about details at that level in the guarantee that we will always have them. But God's promises do meet us even when we don't have them. Every one of these promises is solid and true and we can stand on even if we are lacking in some of those details of our life. He is with us. Nothing separates us from him. We can come to him and he will hear us. We will have eternal life with him if we trust him. Nothing separates us from him. We don't need to worry because his kingdom is ours. These are solid things that he has promised. That meet us. These are much deeper promises, much longer, much richer promises than just the details of life. These promises meet us, comfort us, and sustain us even when we lack some of the details of life. They sustain us. And as the story of Elijah and the widow have reminded us, God's promises are worth trusting in because he will fulfill these promises that he has made. So what are we arguing? We're saying the nature of faith. Faith rests on the greatness and the faithfulness of our God. That is what we are encouraged by. The key to faith, we are saying we have faith in what God has promised us in his word, not anything we decide to believe that he will do for us. Finally, finally, I want us to notice the location of faith. Where does this story happen? This story happens in Zarephath. Zarephath and Sidon. Now, we've already talked about the fact that this is in, this is in uh, Baal country. This is outside of Israel. It's in Gentile land. I loved how one commentator put it. He said, uh, he said this story is happening in Heathensburg, Baal land. Um, it's, it's, it's outside of God's people. Why is this significant? Ask yourself this question. Why is it significant that this story happens outside of Israel in Sidon? That question should be hanging around in the back of your minds because it's the same question that Jesus raised when he brings up this very story in the New Testament. He says, There were obviously plenty of widows and poor people and widows and poor people who trusted God, apparently. There's 7,000 people in Israel who trust God. Why didn't God send Elijah to an Israelite widow and provide food for her? 
Why does he send Elijah all the way 80 miles outside of Israel and provide for a Gentile woman instead? Why does God send Elijah to Zarephath? Jesus raises this question, and when Jesus raises this question, do you remember what happens? He raises this question, and everyone in the synagogue is filled with wrath, and they chase Jesus out of the synagogue, out of the town, to the brink of a hill to try to throw him over a cliff and stone him. Obviously, this is an important question. Why didn't God send Elijah to an Israelite widow? Why to Zarephath? I think the answer is this. The famine is a judgment on the land of Israel. God does not spare Israel from his judgment. And the prophet Elijah represents God's presence in God's word. God sends prophets to his people out of mercy for them. They are the vehicles of his presence in his word. And so God removes the representative of his word and his presence from Israel and hides him in Gentile territory as part of his judgment against Israel. Not even the fringe benefit of mercy and relief will come to Israel. It comes to a pagan widow because God has removed all mercy from his people in the midst of this judgment. When God's people reject him, God sends the blessing to a Gentile woman. Now, why does Jesus bring this up? Why does it remember the context of Jesus and when he brings this up? It happens in Luke 4 when Jesus visits Nazareth, his hometown. And Jesus says this, he says, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Then he references this episode and says, But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came all over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. The Jews knew exactly what Jesus is saying. God punished Israel for rejecting him And so God's mercy fell to others, to Gentiles, while God's wrath was upon Israel. The the Jews knew that and likely accepted it in the case of Elijah's story. They knew what was happening there. God judged us for our sin. And so his prophet was sent to another place, and the benefits of God's presence fell on another place, not us, because we rejected him. But you see what Jesus is claiming. Jesus is claiming that the Jews' response to him was just like Israel's response to the word of Elijah. When Jesus starts to apply this story to himself, to the Pharisees and the Jews who are rejecting him, now God's promises and God's word are not general. They are located in the person of Jesus himself. To believe God's word and to believe God's promises is to believe in Jesus, to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, to believe that Jesus is the one that God has promised, to believe that in Jesus and in Jesus alone is life and hope, to believe that Jesus is God's only son whom he has sent for the redemption of his people and the rescue of his people. He is the Messiah. And Jesus demonstrated all of that and claimed all of that because he read from Isaiah 61 just before this, claiming the prophet, uh, the, the, the messianic prophecy as applying to himself. And so what Jesus is saying when he brings up this story is saying, if you reject me, if you reject me as the one God has sent, then you too will receive the judgment and the wrath of God like Ahab and Israel did. And Jesus in his message of salvation will be extended to the Gentiles and to all who will receive it while you are rejected. 
That's a bold claim, and the Jews recognized it for exactly what it was. And that's why they chase him to a cliff and seek to murder him as a blasphemer. So here's the question. What is our response to Jesus? What's our response? Here is Jesus saying the story of Elijah and the widow is actually a story showing us how we respond to Jesus. Will we look to Jesus and see the word of the Lord, the promise of God, the promise of mercy and grace in the face of judgment, the promise of life in the face of death? Will we look to Jesus and say, here is the word of the Lord. We believe it. We accept it. Or do we reject it? Do we reject it and seek to silence it and turn away from it? See, Jesus Jesus is the beautiful Savior who comes to us in our need. Jesus is the one who promises, who promises hope that will never run out. Jesus is the one who provides for us all throughout our desperate situations. Jesus is the provision for our hearts. He's the provision that we so desperately need, for without him we will die. You see what Jesus is claiming. And just as everything happened according to God's word in 1 Kings, just as he was worth trusting then, just as he was worth trusting by Elijah and this widow, so today Jesus' call to find life and hope in him is worth trusting. This is the point 1 Kings is bringing us back to again and again. God and his word are worth trusting at all times. When it seems impossible, trust God. Not so that you will be applauded for, wow, what amazing faith, but because God is able, because God is trustworthy. And as we stand on the other side of the cross, we are only more sure of this than we were before. If God has not withheld his own son, but gave him up to be killed on a cross for our sake and raised him from the dead so that we might have life, we have an even more sure ground to stand on. We have an even more sure ground to put faith on. And even more we say, wow, faith is not something we should be praised for. Faith is something to give praise to God because he has been faithful to us. Put your faith in this God and in his glorious son, our Savior. I think the main point, the conclusion of 1 Kings is this. Everything will happen according to the word of the Lord. He is worth trusting. As we read this in light of Christ, we say, come to Jesus. He is the word of the Lord, the provision given us in our desperate need. He is so worth trusting. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this story. This story that demonstrates how you come through, how you are faithful to your promises. You fulfill your word. You save your people when you promise to save them. And as we think of the promises you've made to us in your word, I pray that we would cling to them, that we would cling to them because we see how faithful you are, because they give us a solid ground to stand on. I pray that as we go from here tonight, we would be encouraged to to call to mind, to spend time thinking throughout your word of the different promises you have made. And I pray that we would, 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 would rest on them, would rest firmly on the word you've given us. And of course, above all, may we rest on Jesus in the life that you have offered us in Christ. May we rest with firm confidence because you will be faithful to the promise you have made through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray this all in his name. Amen.